Welcome to the Social Lights podcast with Kate Vandervoort, where I interview changemakers and innovators on how they connect with their tribe on social media. Brought to you by Social Mediology. Welcome everyone to the Social Lights podcast. We are in season three and this is episode two. And I am here with Eddie Blass, the CEO and founder of Inventorium. And I'm really excited to have you here, um, Eddie, because the future of education is so critical to us right now. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we always get started by asking, what is it that lights you up? What inspires you to get out of bed in the morning? Um, so <laughs> basically the Inventorium does, um, and I, I started it. It's, it was a real passion project. Um, it started because I really felt that the education system was favoring some people over the other, it's, and that's, that's driven me all my life, really. Um, I grew up in central London and went to a huge comprehensive school where white was the minority, but I still came out as top girl despite the fact that I um, truanted a lot and really wasn't that into schooling, but the cultural capital of my parents got me through so much better than many of my migrant friends and um, kids born in um, minority backgrounds, that it really taught me so much about white privilege um, and since that day, I've really been focusing on how can we um, address the inequalities that stem from diversity. And it's not about everyone being the same. It's about everyone having the same opportunities, because then people can make what they want with the opportunities. Um, and in Australia, I was working in higher ed, trying to change things, and that wasn't happening at all. Um, and then I saw this report about school dropouts. And the number, the rate of high school dropout is at least one in four, if not more. Um, so it can be, according to the who's measured it type thing, up to 48% in South Australia that start year eight do not complete year 12. And I just thought that is so appalling. Um, the system is so broken, something needs to be done. And started sort of researching it on the side. And there's so much written from the late Sir Ken Robinson when he did his famous TED Talk and the RSA Animate thing, all the way through, everybody's saying the same thing, but nobody's doing it. So I was like, well, is it just too hard? You know, is it not actually possible to create a system that works in this way? Um, so it, it became a bit of a challenge project and passion project as to could I create it and would it work? Um, and the answer is yes, you can create it. And yes, it does work. But it's, I mean, we've not got it perfect, but I'd say we've got a blueprint of how the education system could be fit for the 21st century. So tell us more about Inventorium and, and how, the program, how the program works. So it, it, at the moment, it's fully online, but we are working with um, schools and providers now to have um, sort of drop-in hubs um, so that kids can drop in for like physical contact with physical contact, one-to-one, face-to-face tutorials with, um, with their tutors and also physically work in a group with other students um, rather than things being by Zoom when they're doing group work and stuff because I think the dynamic's different when you are physically together. Um, so we're, we're adding hubs to the mix next year. Um, 
But we, we provide this fully online curriculum. It's completely different to school. We work in partnership with schools. So kids who, for whatever reason, can't operate within the traditional school environment. Um, they, they, some of them come to us. Um, so we have kids with severe anxiety, kids who've been bullied, kids with autism, um, some kids who just hate school and are rebels. We have a little group of anarchists, as I like to call them. Um, I was one of those. Yeah, so was I to a degree. Um, and we basically, we have a, a curriculum that supports the students through understanding their identity, who they are and how to be a great citizen and, and employability school skills. And then we negotiate what they do around projects and inquiries that they're interested in and that are relevant to them. Um, and so the, the three key things that um, lead us to be so successful with our students is that they have one teacher who sees them through everything and if they need expert advice, we get expert advice in. But there's one teacher who oversees everything because that breakdown of eight teachers at high school doesn't work for some kids. Um, the second thing is we go at their pace. So kids who get particularly anxious about something or find something difficult, doesn't matter. We spend hours on it, whereas other kids might race through it. And there's, you don't have that um, anxiety in the classroom of some kids not finishing, some kids being ahead all that um, and the third thing is because they've picked what they're learning about it's highly relevant so you know kids who are not going to ever read Shakespeare do not have to read Shakespeare wow so it's really that student directed learning they get to completely self-determined yeah that's self-determined they're in charge of how they use their time when they use their time um, we, you know we, there's no school bell um, they go, you know, it, it really, they learn how to manage themselves, their time, their ambitions, their aspirations, um, and how to learn as much as anything else. So they, it, it, it's really different. And I love how your program goes, so starting from year seven, but it really can see them all the way through that transition phase because it is such a shock well going from primary school to high school is such a shock but going from high school to the real world in inverted commas is it's such a different way of being so to have some some continuity there that supports young people on that journey is immensely uh practical and it makes a huge amount of sense to me yeah, and the curriculum design was originally about bridging the gap between disengagement and the future of work so that these kids are really employable. Um, and then when we started testing it out, parents and schools really wanted it to map to a qualification. So we then mapped it to SACE, because, not just because I live in South Australia, but SACE is the most flexible. Um, all the that, that acronym the South Australian Certificate of Education. Right. So you're in Queensland, so you've got the QCE. Mm -hmm. um, which is Queensland Certificate of Education, but they're all different. And a lot of people and parents don't realize this. What state you're in makes a huge difference to your kid's high school. Um, because although there's like a standard curriculum that has to be covered, how it's covered and assessed is very different state from state, particularly the high school certificate, the Lever certificate. Um, so we, we use the South Australian one because it's the most flexible. Uh-huh. And 
I noticed on your um, website that you've got kind of the program that sits alongside school for those that want that extra. And then it looks like you've got um, one option, which is which is replacing school. And so can you talk a bit about that difference? Yeah. So in South Australia, we run a cohort through Open Access College where it's literally um, school at home, a, a kind of homeschool top version of it. Um, and we decided to sort of offer that um, privately to parents as well for kids who aren't in South Australia and can't go through Open Access College. Um, so we literally offer a complete homeschooled school service. Um, so our preference is to always work with the school, um, partly because of that, that sort of hub bit that I was talking about. And kids can always go into school, say, for one lesson they love, if they particularly love art or drama or something like that, and then spend the rest of their time with us. Um, and we also think, you know, it's important that kids have the choice of going back to school if they want to and still deal with extra school, extracurricular school activities. Um, to be part of sports teams and stuff. Um, but where there are situations where the kids aren't at school for whatever reason or the parents have decided to homeschool, we can work um, just straight with the parents. And have you found the schools to be accepting of that as a model? Have um, they got that flexibility? Some are, um, some aren't. We work with those that are. Um, we're getting there gradually. Um, I think the fact that we've been going for two years now and our open access cohort, which are all people who would not be going, who would not go to school and also who've rejected, most of them have rejected the standard open access um, offering, which is standard school delivered at a distance. Um, so there's still like a timetable and, and that. Um, we have 100% retention over two years. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and it's because they set the pace. Yeah. That's the, you know, we don't lose them because if they need a break or they've got stressed about something, we just slow down. Yeah, and there are obviously parameters and benchmarks, I guess, that they need to reach at some point. So if a, if a young person was to, say, take two years out of school and be with you, then can they go back in at the level that they would be had they been at school for two years? Uh, yeah, look, it depends very much on what they do with us and the circumstances for why they've had the two years out. But a lot of our kids do go back into mainstream school. So last year, 40% did. And I think probably about 40% will this year and they'll go back in at the next year from the one they did with us. So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. One of the quotes that I love on your website is education must be the only sector that hasn't already been completely revolutionized by technology. Um, and that was Wendy Kopp who said that. And it's so true. When you look at every aspect um, of our society, technology has played such a major role. And what's been really interesting during COVID is how technology was forced into the mix with people being in lockdown and not being in the school environment. Have you got some reflections on how that's unfolded over the last few months and whether, you know, that has revolutionised in some way or whether we just kind of did that because we had to and we've now gone back to the way it was? So, I mean, look, it's really interesting. So I thought when COVID hit, we'd be really busy and we went absolutely dead quiet because schools were suddenly panicking about doing what they do normally through technology. And I mean, I saw some teachers do amazing things to recreate the classroom online. 
um, and the notion of actually using the technology differently just didn't stick. And, um, you know, I'm members of um, various teacher Facebook groups where they're sharing stories and stuff. And I would try and put up advice, but it was almost like people couldn't hear it. They didn't have the capacity because they were so panicked about how were they going to do what they normally do. Now that schools are going back, things are really picking up because they're realizing that actually some kids did better. Yeah, that has been fascinating in the conversations. I mean, my daughter's only in year one, but the conversations that I've had with parents around the differences in how children coped. So my daughter is a real little social butterfly and her friends are vitally important to her. She's incredibly bright. So the fact that I didn't manage to jam a full curriculum into her day was absolutely (laughs) fine. Um, But she definitely struggled to not have that social contact Whereas there are other parents that I've talked to who um, the opposite was true. They're kids that have really struggled with that traditional education model and actually found the flexibility and the more hands-on support from parents involved in that to be, they thrived during that time. Yeah, and look, so we found a number of things. So we've, we've picked up a lot of parents who discovered what was actually happening in school and thought it was terrible and hated what their kids were doing and wanted something different, which is fine. Um, and, and it, you know, you always get some bad teachers, I suppose. And so, you know, when, when the parents realized what was going on in the school, they, they made that quality choice. Um, but the majority of kids that we're picking up are the ones who genuinely did better self-paced at home. You know, the kids who coming into year 11 used to hate going to school, wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, but actually in lockdown, got up at six, did their work by 8.30 and then were out surfing all day. You know, those are the ones who actually the parents have seen. My kid actually does better when they've got more control over doing things and how they choose to spend their time. And the kids became much happier. um, And actually they felt much more engaged with their learning. Um, And those really are are the... Uh, the parents and kids that were picking up Um, and the ones also where the schools have noticed that Um, some schools are talking to us about having kids maybe three days a week online and in the hub and two days a week going to school so that they balance a bit of both because the kids will maybe cope best like that so I think there's been a, a realization for a lot of parents and teachers that the traditional classroom environment isn't necessarily the best place for every student. And while that dropout rate hit those that really couldn't stand it any longer, there's this realization that actually maybe there's another quarter who would benefit from a mix rather than a quarter who definitely needs something different and then a quarter who benefit from a mix. And then the traditional classroom's still working great for some. And And the thing is, it's a mix and match. And I think what you said about Um, that's an interesting opportunity for the education sector at this intersection in time is that everybody rushed to do what they've always done using technology and in the coming months and years to actually have some reflection on so if we were to design this from scratch how could we actually use technology to amplify the education experience to support that experience rather than doing what we've always done and just doing it on technology yeah and i mean that's that's the interesting thing with our curriculum is the way that our curriculum is written is there's basically we we sort of introduce an idea and then we have a video that we've curated off of youtube 
because there is better video on YouTube than most of us could ever produce in our lives. Um, and, you know, in, in the employability 10 to 12 curriculum, that's been, a lot of them are TED Talks. Um, and effectively, the kids then watch the TED Talk, which are really engaging. And then there's, there's a reflective question where they have to make sense of that for their lives or do something as a result of having watched it and learned it. So it's very much, if they're not doing something with the learning, there's no point in them knowing it. Um, so despite the fact it's at home online, it's incredibly experiential. Mm. Um, and, and the kids go through it at their own pace. Um, they tend to have great conversations with their parents. Mm. Um, it's one of the things that, you know, feedback we get was, oh, we're discussing this. I haven't even thought about that. Um, you know, and, and we introduced them to like doing their social media profile and stuff, but we probably need to do more on um, how social media is manipulating them. We're just sort of working on how we're going to do that um, to keep them even safer. Um, but, we, you know, we do kind of cover things like cyberbullying and stuff and um, so that they've, you know, all these things are there for them to address and be aware of. It's interesting with my six-year-old in year one, when she, she's an inquisitive little thing, she's constantly pushing the boundaries on, well, why is it done this way? And what do you mean a word is spelt that way? And why am I learning this? What relevance does it have? So wish me luck for the rest of her schooling because <laughs> she gets year one. Again. But it does. As an adult, you sit there and for some of those answers it's literally a just because there is no rational explanation i don't know why we do it that way we just do <laughs> that's right and it's um but it is interesting as a parent to then because i felt school was immensely ir irrelevant particularly as i came out of school and realized how little of what i did at school like what what little amount of that was ever put into practice in my life mm. um so it's wonderful i actually used to be involved with a program called discovery which doesn't exist anymore but it was a, a personal development accelerated learning program for teenagers and it was seven days intensive with ropes courses and you know it was back in the 80s so it was very well, 80s and 90s, but it was very cutting edge back then. And it was just such a different model of helping teenagers to find what they're passionate about and really enhancing the value that they bring to the world. And so it's wonderful to see that you're doing that, um, you know, and, and tying in really nicely with the education system. So you mentioned social media. How does your, firstly, how does your business use social media to get the message out there um, about what you're doing? And then I'll ask a secondary question after that. <laughs> yeah. So actually the only place we advertise is on Facebook and Instagram at the moment. Yeah. I have a couple of teenagers making me a video for TikTok. <laughs> Just to raise the <laughs> Um But um, I, um, I don't use the funnels and algorithms and stuff. Um, I just segment by, I mean, we find it's generally mothers that use Facebook. So we do women um, within an age group who would be parents of teenagers who um, have an interest as, as being a parent. Yeah. And do you integrate social media, like often Facebook groups are part of courses, and do you integrate social media into the learning experience at all? Um, we, we thought about it. Um, 
a lot of parents object to it. So, um, and because it's so unregulated, um, we haven't. But if, if there was a way of having a closed, a, a truly closed group, um, we possibly would. If we had groups of kids who wanted to, um, we wouldn't say no um, and set it up as a closed group, but we don't promote it actively as part of the learning experience. They, they use forums online um, and, and meet with each other within our platform. Great. And that's, you know, that's the best solution. Obviously, if you can have it on your own platform, you then have control around the security and the privacy of that. And, and look, we're, we're always on the lookout for what new tech is coming up to find one that will integrate better. But um, the, the, the algorithms on social media have always worried me. They worry me even more, having watched The Social Dilemma. Um, but I, the, the fact that, I mean, even with Google, and this is something we teach the kids is, you know, we'll, we'll have like four or five people sat around a computer, um, all logged in as themselves, and we all do the same search terms, and we all get different answers. Mm. And that really shows them when they see how like the person sitting next to them got different list to them, how manipulated the data flow is and how to start thinking about how do you find it and changing your search terms and where you look and how you look and using different search engines and the benefit of doing that. Oh, it's so wonderful that they're getting that education around that so early because I think as we've talked about offline, you know, there's huge, there can be huge benefit for these platforms in terms of connecting people around things that they care about and activating kindness and all the wonderful things that have and can happen through social media. But there is absolutely no doubt that there's a real shadow side to that and the social dilemma has been probably the first mainstream um, that's started to get some good traction and, and start some critical conversations about how these technologies are driving our individual behaviour, our societal behaviour. So it's, it's wonderful. In fact, getting the, the um, kids involved in your program to watch The Social Dilemmas probably. That well, would I make really that because I, yeah, I thought I could do a public viewing of it and hold like a two-hour webinar where we watch. It's quite long, but we could, I mean, I think it would engage them for the whole time. Um, watch it and then have like a half hour discussion afterwards on what their thoughts are, what bits worried them the most. What they're I'd love to be a part of that if you decide to do that. Yeah, okay, I'll let you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it is long, but it is a very engaging um, I think it would keep. I think it would keep them engaged. They've done it in a way that's, you know, that is engaging. No, mm. oh, it's very, very cleverly done. I've been listening to their podcast of um, the humane technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they. Um, it's fascinating hearing hearing their podcast. It's been really interesting. Centre for Humane Technology. Yes, Centre for Humane Technology. That's right. And so obviously you're taking that really seriously in terms of um, educating the young people about how these platforms play a role in their life. Um, what are some of your reflections on the impact that these platforms are having on young people? Uh, generally, they're pretty negative. Um, they allow people to feel connected particularly kids in rural and remote areas. Um, but the, um, the negative self-view they develop of themselves can be quite strong. 
Um, so actually working on them, re-establishing their identity and who they want to be. Um, and there's a wonderful TED talk um, that we use on someone introducing themselves and how they set about trying to be everything that everyone wanted and ended up with a group mixing with a lot of people that made them very unhappy. And then one day they just went sod that and changed how they introduced themselves to who they were and with their peculiarities, etc. And realized now they've got a group of maybe 20 people that they know, but they 20 people that are a really tight group of friends that, and it's that thing about really finding, finding, well, people call it tribe now, don't say finding your tribe or finding your group or herd or the people who really matter to you. Well, and I think that's one of the, you know, my four-year-old was born without her left hand. And for me, when I was pregnant and when she was born, not knowing what all of that meant. And I can't imagine knowing all the people that we've connected with, the organisations that we've connected with. She's become this real little advocate for kids with limb differences and she's four. None of that would have happened without social media. Um, and so I guess for me, and we've talked about this offline, that these platforms are not going anywhere, but how do we as society and how do we help young people understand that shadow side, understand the manipulation and understand that algorithm, um, how that works, how they are the product, how they're being sold to, you know, if they can start to have some insight and some perspective on that and be really conscious about where they choose to participate. Um, I guess the question that I always get left with though is for young people. So we've got that discernment, most of us as adults, not everybody, but a lot of people have got the ability to make those choices. And, and I'm very conscious about where I choose to participate in social media. Um, but younger people don't necessarily have that. So what are the structures and supports that we can put in place to help them have that discern discernment, I guess? Yeah, I, I think some of it is about them realizing that actually if they're going to spend, you know, if they're going to look at Facebook or TikTok or something, they're going to look at it as that's like half an hour when we would have watched TV or YouTube or, or whatever. And actually YouTube's just as bad. Um, but um, my children watch these horrendous American kids unpacking toys nonstop. And I try to get them to watch the youth TEDx channel instead. And they're not quite there yet, but I'm already having those conversations with my four and six year old about, can you see that this is not just two girls that are like you? These are two girls who are being paid by toy companies to try and convince you to ask me for these toys. And they're like, really? <laughs> and when they ask me, I go, see, you saw that on YouTube, didn't you? So we're starting those conversations early. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's I'm not necessarily against the algorithms for making suggestions on things that you might like, because often it does show you things that otherwise you would never have found, which is useful. But it's the fact that they, you have no way of accessing the alternate um, the bubbles that get created where it's the self-fulfilling, the more you engage, the more you get the same. Mm. And so the more, the narrower and more myopic your life becomes in terms of the information you get on these, these channels. Um, so I think for me, what I'd actually really like to see is for these channels to put up a very quick block delete function. So if somebody sees something that's making them feel bad or it's hurtful or nice, you know, like as simple as the like, 
you know, on yeah. Facebook, mm, no, and that person's blocked. So you don't get that um, negative feedback all the time, which kind of can pull down a lot of, a lot of kids um, and that kind of fear of missing out stuff. Um, I think, you know, YouTube, uh, it's a bit like some of the ad blocker stuff on your, when you're in Google search and you enter sites and some of them say, you know, we make our money from ads, please accept. I kind of think YouTube needs that type of thing as well with some stuff. Because yeah. let's face it, you're not going to say, no, your kids can't look at any adverts, but there would be certain, you could look at categories that you would allow. And I just think there needs to be more control and choice for parents and for individuals as to what they want to see. My smart TV, I want to take YouTube off it because I don't like that the remote has got a button that says YouTube and I can't remove YouTube off the television. So my children, now that they're old enough to work the remote, can actually come and turn the TV on without me even knowing and be on YouTube. But having said that, you know, I think YouTube has... Uh, you know, there is a lot of great stuff on YouTube and every, oh, everything, everything in the inventorium is curated off of YouTube. And we use things like um, National Geographic, TED Talks, all that type of thing. And a lot of it is brilliant, but there's also some very peculiar dodgy stuff. Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing that I think is kind of dangerous with it, and I know they've allegedly got codes of ethics and conduct and stuff, but effectively... National broadcasting channels have a, uh, there's a standard, there's ethics and journalism, there's codes of conduct at, that have to be met that are not there for YouTube. Anybody can post anything on YouTube. And actually, if somebody posts something about someone else, it's very hard for the person it's posted about to get it taken down. Uh, Unless it's offensive, you can't get it taken down, uh, uh, which I think is a huge infringement on someone's privacy um, that needs to be challenged. I think all these companies saying that they are not editing is a lie because the algorithm clearly edits what you see. And so they are publishers and should be held to publishing standards. Mm. And I think the ability for anyone to be able to live broadcast one to many yeah. needs stopping. That yeah. needs to be stopped, full stop. Um, you know, you book a webinar, you can do Zoom, there are channels for that that it has to be pre-booked but that instant live broadcasting i think is about the most dangerous thing for society that is because yeah. there's no editing none at all yeah and and so you had the new zealand massacre the blow, blowing his brains out you know all those types of things should just not be able to happen um, and again that is them these channels are being publishers and broadcasters without any of the regulation. The ABC would never be able to do that. The BBC, Fox News, none of them would be able to do that. And yet it's perfectly acceptable for millions of people to be able to see it on YouTube or Facebook. Yeah. And it just should be banned. I'm sorry. They should just, it should be called out and stopped. And I'm not saying, by the way, that, you know, when people, you know, like George Floyd and, and those issues, that they shouldn't be filmed and shown. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that they should be censored. It's the immediate live broadcast that I think is exceptionally dangerous in the long term because there isn't the opportunity for anyone to frame it in any way or 
um, introduce it in any way or give a warning in any way. You know, I'm sure there will have been loads of people who saw the George Floyd. I mean, I didn't watch it. I have no desire to see somebody being killed. Because you can't unwatch that. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, I think one of the interesting dilemmas that we have is that these, this is emerging technology and they're going to develop functionality and they're going to push the boundaries on what's possible without knowing what the ramifications are of that. And I completely agree that the moment these things happen, changes need to be made to address it. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges right now is the time that it is taking and sometimes government mandating, which is starting to happen a lot more, um, for these platforms to make those changes. Um, you know, I'm lost the ethic of doing no harm, you know, yes. that just doesn't seem to be in consideration for some people. And yep. so the platform actually has to take on that editorial ethic. Yes. And they're very, you know, it's complex having billions of pieces of data that they've somehow got to, um, got to manage because what's in and what's out. But I've reported some things recently that I thought were absolutely appalling. And then the Facebook support has come back very quickly, but have said we've reviewed it and it doesn't go against our user guidelines. And I'm, um, you know, it, it's disturbing that that functionality is not working as swiftly and as accurately as it, as it should be. And, you know, you could, the other side of that is they've had to remove their workforces remotely. And there's all sorts of reasons why they're saying that that's not possible right now. But I think they need to take more responsibility, I agree, in, in rectifying these issues. And even if it's taking down functionality until they can put the safety measures in place. And, and they're tech companies. I mean, that amused the hell out of me that Telstra couldn't like resolve problems on the phone during lockdown. It's like telecommunication. You're a telecommunication company. <laughs> yeah, it's like... <laughs> Yeah. You can't actually have people work at home <laughs> on laptops using the internet. What does it say for the rest of us? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the same with Facebook and that. You know, Atlassian's letting everybody work at home. Google's letting everybody work at home. So why can't Facebook? There's, you know, there are, there are ways... Facebook is, it's just... Facebook is, it's just that there's such big calls for privacy and data security that it's posed a very tricky dilemma about how do you decentralise everything and keep that, that yeah. level of safety. Huge, huge new workforce. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the future of work is a whole different topic of conversation, but there's no doubt that this period of time has, has forced us much more quickly towards that, which is fantastic in terms of looking at different ways of, of the workforce operating. Um, so, Eddie, just thinking about your journey as an entrepreneur and how you've got to hear, um, a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are budding change makers and innovators who have an idea, they want to change the system, there's something they want to be done differently. What's your one piece of advice to them around um, taking action in an impactful way? Um, so firstly, I'd say do it. But secondly, I'd say, but do it in a way that keeps you safe. So um, try and maintain another source of income until you're sure that what you're doing is going to be able to sustain you economically. So I think, you know, one of the things that COVID's shown a lot of people as well is how, how economically vulnerable people become in an incredibly short period of time. 
So you might think you can survive in different ways, but actually when, when things get tough, you need to, you need to have a, a, a savings account or a, a way of earning money. So I would say don't jump fully. Try and work part-time or something first so that you maintain an income stream beyond what you're trying to do. Because bringing about change, if something's really innovative and a real change to people, um, you're looking at a three to five year period to get it to get it going if something is just a, a, a um, pivot on what someone else is doing and you're doing it faster cheaper better whatever more locally you can get going very quickly yes but change does change innovation takes three to five years minimum for people to start to be aware and trust the change and go with it and often by the time we're hearing about them, it looks like an overnight success, but there's an enormous amount that's gone in prior to that. Yeah. Yeah, even thank you water, three years. And that you know that, that, that and everyone bought bottled water. <laughs> you know, so it's like, hmm, you know, it takes time, it takes longer than you think. And um, you know, constantly when people say to me, How's things how's things going? I'm going, I always say, Yeah, look, we're all going in the right direction, just a hell of a lot slower than I'd like. <laughs> yeah. And so for parents who are evaluating their children's education at this point in time, or young people who are doing the same thing, um, how can they connect with you? How can they best find uh out there's things to check out our website, which is just inventorium.com.au, or we've got a Facebook page, which is Inventorium, um, and just messages. Um, but I, I think, you know, the thing that I'd say to everybody is that you, your high school qualification, your ATAR score, are not as important as, as everybody makes out. You, you, you can get to do whatever you want. There is always a way around. So if you're finding it too hard... And it is literally um, depressing you to the point you don't want to go to school and you don't want to get up in the mornings. And then, you know, there is an alternative way to find employment that will work for you and find your purpose and then study later on when you're ready for it. And technology now, both in starting a business, which we were just talking about in terms of having a side hustle or a part-time, technology now just allows you to test and try and do things differently without making these major life-altering decisions. Um, you know, you can do it one way and then try another way. And there's yeah, I mean, these, these two yeah, the two 19 year olds who are doing the TikTok video for me, they've opened a digital marketing agency. They did their IB at top private school, which they finished for their parents. Um, and they said it was a complete and utter waste of time. And the last three years, everything they did that was interesting was outside of what was in the curriculum. And they've set themselves up in this agency and they're not going to university. And they look at their friends going to uni who don't want to look at their textbooks. And these guys are reading everything they possibly can on digital marketing. And, you know, and I think who's actually learning more and who's going to be more successful as a result, because they just decided actually the traditional pathway of where they're expected to go isn't it for them. And they're just wonderfully optimistic and enthusiastic. And, you know, for them, the word no isn't really there. It's like, yeah, we can find a way of doing this. Yeah. They've done TikTok videos before, but yeah, they're like, yeah, we can do this. <laughs> well, that's what my daughter has on our list of things to do this weekend is she wants us to create a TikTok video together. <laughs> 
Um, she goes, I'm helping you learn for work, mummy. I'm like, yes, darling. Thank you very much for helping me learn TikTok. <laughs> TikTok is about the least regulated of all of yeah. the ones. It will be very interesting to see how that unfolds over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, as a not where most of my clients are. <laughs> it's as a platform, I'm not overly mad on it, but it's where most teenagers are. That's right. So, and it's you know, it's hard to it's hard to balance the ethics sometimes. So do you go with something? Do you not? So, yeah. but we we put one on and see. So. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing your TikTok video and thank you so much, Eddie, for your time today. It's um, education, something that I'm incredibly passionate about and seeing new ways emerging that support um, young people to learn on their own terms is, uh, it's wonderful to see, see that evolving through the inventorium. So I look forward to seeing how that evolves in the coming years and how it applies to my children when they are teenagers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the Social Lights podcast produced by Social Mediology. You can connect with us on Facebook at Social Lights Podcast and you can find today's show notes and more episodes at socialmediology.com.au forward slash social lights. Please subscribe in your favourite podcast platform to receive future episodes and share with your tribe to inspire others to action.